Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Vinconza Media Podcast about everything in print. Stuart in L.A. here, back with one final summer 2014 book for you, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes Firestorm. It's written by Greg Keyes. It was published just a few weeks ago in May. It is, of course, a companion to the new blockbuster that Jacob, Arnie, and I have reviewed for Gold Level Donors over at Sister Podcast, now playing. I almost missed it. Truth be told, it's a paperback that's easy to overlook. It's only because of the magic of Twitter, a listener brought to my attention, that this story is not a mere novelization. It doesn't recount the events that are in the film. It's a prequel. There is a 10-year gap between Rise of the Planet of the Apes and the new story, and this book is going to try and fill in that gap by covering the first week of what happened after Caesar, Cornelia, Rocket, Maurice, Coba, after they all stormed across that Golden Gate Bridge, found sanctuary in the Redwoods, this is their story for that first week. Genesis, the genetics research company responsible for creating the super ape, is commissioning a band of mercenaries called Anvil to hunt them down and capture them. You have guys in helicopters shooting tranquilizer darts and shooting real bullets. I mean, if they have to kill, that's okay. The point is Genesis must cover up they're huge mess here. The general public has not quite connected the dots that those apes that escaped are responsible for the flu that is now sweeping the world. That there is a simian virus created by Koba, really, and by James Franco's character, Will, who is not in this book at all. And it is now, within a week, killed 250,000 people worldwide. The highest concentration of deaths are here in San Francisco. The public is getting savvy. They don't yet know. When they finally do storm Genesis and point their fingers, the remaining laboratory technicians want to be able to say, we don't know what you're talking about. Where do you have the evidence? Show me an, a monkey body and you can prove it. They're trying to cover their own ass. The team they put together to contain this mess, damage control, is composed of characters we have never seen before. They were not in Rise. They're not going to be in the new movie. This makes this feel very much like a standalone adventure because we're learning all these new people that will have no impact in the future. It's a, a standalone story, really. At the center of Anvil's mission is Malachi Yeomans. He is a longtime chimp hunter, I suppose, uh, or, or chimp killer, as it were. A, a tracker is how he refers to himself. He was born in a fictitious African nation, the product of a white father that left him, a black mother that was murdered by marauders that stormed their village, killed his brother, killed his mother, made him a child soldier. He eventually learned to survive by hunting down gorillas and selling them for food, that people eat them and he would chop them up and do that, this reputation built over the years, 
when he came to the West, it followed him. He is hired here. Anvil knows he will be the ace in the hole that will allow them to find Caesar, Cornelius, all the escapees. He's as smart as the super chimps that have escaped them. Except, of course, we know he's not going to succeed at his job, so he's set up to look like a patsy here. But he isn't a sympathetic character. He's very difficult to like. But we do spend a lot of time making you want to pity him, I suppose is the word. Because he has such a horrible backstory, we're eventually won over. I think our identifiable character is Clancy Stoppard. She's a 27-year-old primatologist from UC Berkeley. She's the privileged white Westerner who just doesn't understand Malachi, who judges him for what he's done. You know, she loves chimps. She would hate anyone that would chop up a gorilla and eat him. But she does eventually come around. She even sleeps with Malachi, and he's decades older than her. But she eventually is seduced by his story, his hard luck, his competency. I'm not sure exactly what about him that just made her swoon. I also just think she's in a difficult circumstance, surrounded by other mercenaries who don't want to help these chimpanzees at all. And at least Malachi has some history with chimps that isn't violent. So because Clancy loves him, we're meant to at least sympathize as well. And if you don't, and I really didn't, uh, we get more abuse stories told in parallel in the chimp world that I think Malachi is meant to be the human counterpoint to Koba because when we do go back to the storylines of the chimps in the trees, we don't really focus on Caesar. Caesar has split up the group. He thinks that there is safety by taking their large populace and dividing it into three. So the tribe that we're really following is Koba's. Koba has breathed that magic gas that now makes him as smart as the human beings. And so he is remembering his life story and telling it to us for our own amusement. I... I, I do not know why we need so much history of abuse. It's clear from the scars on Koba's body that he's been through much. But this story is going to tell you how he gets every nick and bruise. I mean, we learn why he loses his eye, and we learn every other horrible thing that happened to him. His life started with love. He was in a small research facility that lost its funding. And once he was put in that system, man, it was an ugly road. If you couldn't have inferred that from the way that he looks by the time he comes into the group, it's very obvious from pages and pages of being slapped around by drunks and poked and prodded and injected with things that make him vomit. What makes it even harder to hear than Malachi's story is that he's narrating it in a chimp voice so he doesn't have uh, proper grammar. And, and so, me go in cage, feel sick, vomit, Milo feels sick too. You know, he has this friend that's on a sitcom with him, believe it or not, for a short period of time. He's put on television, and I think that's where he learns some of his trickery that he'll use later in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes to diffuse human expectations. He can monkey around and, and play the clown, uh, but that didn't work out so well because the owner eventually shoots himself after slapping Milo and Koba around. Koba's got it bad. We knew that from watching the movies. We We get too much of that here in this prequel novel, told by a very ineloquent narrator. If you are here because you want to know how the human colony 
was put together in San Francisco that that's here at the start of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes film, well, the only tie to that that we get is the character of Dreyfus. It's He's played by Gary Oldman in the film. He is here as a retired police chief of San Francisco who is watching his city collapse when the mayor's office is linked to the scandal with Genesis and he is ousted from office. They decide to elect Dreyfus, just sort of ad hoc. A, a cabal of people say, hey, let's get the police chief in here. He was going to run to be mayor anyway. He was plotting that political campaign. Well, he gets the job without having to spend any campaign dollars because in the chaos that sweeps through San Francisco, he takes charge. And I guess he remains in charge for 10 more years until we get to the movie. He has always been leading this pack of desperate survivors. And what he deals with in this novel are a militia group that's going around targeting hospitals, healthcare facilities, anywhere where the sick might congregate. There are radical groups that are there to throw Molotov cocktails and kill the infected. And he's got to deal with that firestorm. That's the firestorm of the title. That's what Dreyfus does in this novel. And it's told in parallel to the firestorm that's happening to Caesar, that the leader of the apes is dealing with the fact that Anvil turns to using flames and and burning the trees and really trying to do more extreme actions as the monkeys resist capture. But a huge sense of inevitability hangs over this story. We know that all of these humans are going to die, and we know all these chimps are going to make it and and build a really cool village that we'll see in the movie. So there's not a lot of suspense about these outcomes. All the other characters they introduce here aren't very interesting because we know, yeah, they have no relevance to the movie universe. If they're never going to do anything that influences the movie, if they're never going to be characters in the movie storyline, it's just very difficult to invest in them the same feelings we have for, say, Caesar. So, yeah, you know, we have Clancy, the primatologist. She had a live-in boyfriend who breaks the story. He's a reporter. He uses the information she feeds him to put out the link between Genesis, the flu, and the escaped monkeys, and then assassins are trying to kill him, and he's shot and needs to seek out a ER doctor that he knows to treat him at home because he's too afraid to go to a hospital lest he be firebombed or contract the flu. The The doctor gets the simian flu and she starts bleeding and will she be able to survive long enough to help out this reporter? Who cares? I'm not even going to tell you their names because they matter that little. We spend a lot of time on their survivor stories, but ultimately there's no consequence to any of this. We were here to see what Caesar was going to do, what Dreyfus was going to do, and presumably what some of the other major characters of the new movie were going to do. Maybe even James Franco. You know, Will could have been here. We could have had his story wiped out. We could know conclusively whether he contracted the virus or was genetically predisposed to survive, but that is not answered here. And we don't get past this week. There are 10 years in the storyline. Nine of them remain in the dark. We don't know what happens to San Francisco in the nine years, other than what we can presume. Bad things. <laughs> Lots of abuse. That's what I get from reading Dawn of the Planet of the Apes Firestorm, is that it was bad all around. Whether you were a chimp 
or a human being, whether you had money or you were poor, everybody suffered, and this book is miserable. Honestly, I don't know what the entertainment value of this is supposed to be. Doing prequels is hard. I have some sympathy for this author. I think he was given an unenviable task to tell a prequel uh, inside a world that's destined for mass death and and really no hero's arc. Nobody can be a cool guy in this storyline. This is not a story. This is a portrait of misery. And as such, congratulations. It's pretty miserable. Most of the things we see and read about here are ugly to behold. The biggest compliment I can give it is it's easy to read. (laughs) It's only 300 pages, and these are large type, huge chapter breaks, pages of blank in between. I, I, I don't know how many words it is, but honestly, the time flies by. I was able to read this within a matter of a couple hours, but it's unessential. I learned nothing really substantial about the movie universe. I, I didn't care about the new characters introduced. If you were as bad as Koba thinks human beings are, you might be entertained by the stories of violence that he endures, but this is not the kind of thing I want to focus on. Honestly, I kind of wish we had ended with the book last week, ended on a high note. Now, there was a prequel that knew how to do its job. There was someone who was able to insert a new storyline within confined movie universe events and still found an original way to tell compelling stories. My advice to you is to go read Conspiracy of the Planet of the Apes. Even if you followed my recommend last week, read it again. You're better off reading it twice than reading Dawn of the Planet of the Apes Firestorm. So alas, although I could have wished for a happier end note, uh, I am finished for the summer. I have read all of the books that I had planned and will now be turning this podcast back over to Arnie and Stephen King. He's still got a few short stories in the Night Shift collection to cover as we over at Now Playing will be covering the final movie adaptation franchise, Children of the Corn. I hope you can join us for that. I hope that you're able to donate to Now Playing. Hear my thoughts on the Planet of the Apes movie universe. You can find out all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com. In the meantime, do keep reading. I will return. I'm already plotting my winter reading list, and I'm sure I'll be back with you talking books very, very soon. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.